listening to Down the Wormhole Podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University, and my quarantine hobby is obsessing over what I should buy for backpacking. Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel in Hendersonville, North Carolina. And my quarantine hobby has just been picking up an old hobby of cross-stitching, but cross-stitching funny, funny things, such as a T-Rex sitting on a toilet saying, oh crap. I really <laughs> want to get one of those. You should make multiple. Uh, Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte. And my uh, quarantine hobby has uh, been meditating. Very nice. Well, you might notice that this week's question is a little bit more uh, neutral or fun than the last couple of weeks' questions. Um, I think it, it helps us because we're having a low-energy morning that we didn't want the question to be related to shame, which is our topic for today, because it's already a little bit of a downer. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, last week, um, or the last time that we did an episode on emotion, uh, we did also a downer, which was, oh, disgust, disgust. That's what we did. <laughs> um, but these negative emotions are so fun sometimes. So I think that they don't have to be downers, but disgust was what we did last time. And this week we're doing shame. Um, and shame, I think is a fun topic because it, it's, even though it is, um, a, nobody wants to feel shame, shame in and of itself is really useful socially. And, I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of how it um, polices social boundaries and uh, helps communities decide who's in and who's out. And so, yeah, that's it. There's a lot, a lot of directions we could go with that. But just to give a little bit of um, some background, shame, in contrast to disgust, because it, if you remember from that episode, disgust is something that falls broadly within this category of uh, other judging emotions. But shame is a self-conscious emotion. So it's something that people feel about themselves. And if you feel shame, it may be or may not be for a justified reason. Um, Like we can get into the, the debates about like how shame is connected to morality and whether or not People should feel shame if they don't feel shame or, you know, vice versa. But shame is something that is self-conscious and um, similar to other emotions such as like embarrassment or guilt. These all fall in this category of self-conscious emotion. And uh, I think that in like colloquial or like conversational use, we sometimes, uh, or I can at least speak for myself, sometimes have used interchangeably shame and guilt. And so it can be a little bit confusing to keep those things um, separate. But 
if we're going to talk about them in like a little, a slightly more technical way, um, they are really different. And so I think maybe that is a good way to like give some intro because these mm -hmm. are two words and emotions that we feel and are like part of our everyday experience. Well, hopefully you don't feel shame every day, but <laughs> maybe sometimes you should, but not every day. <laughs> uh, so shame is something that is, um, an evaluation, a self-evaluation of the self, if you will. But it it's related to what some people will call the global self. So it it's a negative evaluation of your entire being or your essence. Like you might think that you are just worthless or, you know, there's like nothing that you could do with your actions to make that shame go away because shame is just trying to tell you something about who you are and it is that you are not good enough. Um, so that's what this feeling evokes in people. And so it's very painful and is usually something that's felt a little bit deeper than guilt. Um, because guilt on the other hand is also painful and negative and has like varying depths. But if you feel guilty, it's often described as having to do with an action or like a, a mistake that you made or something that you did that you feel violates your own um, like internal values. And so there's something that you can do to fix that guilt. You can make amends with a friend or, you know, if you say like forgot to like attend a birthday party and you feel guilty about that, you can say sorry to that friend. Or, you know, if you like, I don't know, evaded your taxes, <laughs> they're, like they're you can then pay them again. <laughs> there are, um, there are more concrete and discrete actions that you can take to alleviate guilt. And so it's not something that has usually as deep, or as uh, lingering and amorphous and like all consuming of a feeling as something like shame, where if you feel shame, it, it might not matter if you say sorry, you might not even like be in a position that you need to say sorry, maybe you did nothing wrong, but it's, there's something that has happened um, and it might be more of a violation or a perceived violation of something that is a community standard. And so you feel not good enough in part because you feel like maybe you don't belong or are not living up to the ideals that you have internalized as being important. Um, and that may or may not actually align with something that you um, as an individual think is like true or good. Um, but it, like there's a, an important community piece in the feeling of shame. So does that, does that make sense to you both about um, how we're describing these two different things? Yeah, I, <clears throat> I was actually going to, to add the, the community piece um, in the sense that shame, to, to my understanding, shame needs to be um, in relation to. Um, so one can feel, so you, others can tell you that you should be ashamed. You should be ashamed of yourself. Um, but the idea, or one can shame oneself, but only in relation to, right, that global self, uh, the self-consciousness, but only in relation to an external. Mm -hmm. 
entity, right? Um, I mean, you can feel ashamed about something that you did or didn't do, right? All those things, but it's only in relation to something else, even if that something else is still yourself. Um, it's not, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, and to me, that's where the, the parallel is less guilt and more embarrassment. And that embarrassment is the, the lighter general feeling of shame. It's the, it's the precursor, the possible precursor that you, you know, it's, it's more momentary embarrassment and embarrassment usually happens literally with other people. Whereas shame, you can feel it and experience it with other people or by yourself, where mm-hmm. very few of us get embarrassed when we're alone. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so I, so for me, it's, it's, I make the parallel less about guilt, but more to embarrassment and, and certainly shame. And I, um, I definitely wanted to, to pick on something that you were saying, Kendra, though, um, that, that we do need to feel it and, and that that is culturally relevant. Mm-hmm. So what, what each culture deems of as something to be shameful or shamed for um, changes with time and place. So I think we need to really evaluate that, that it's that the emotion itself is a universal emotion, but what elicits that response is not a universal emotion. Exactly. Not, not a universal, uh, not a universal thing, right? There are some places where nudity is considered shameful, um, right? We just have to look at Jenna Jackson um, at a Super Bowl. I don't know how many years ago, um, right? Um, <laughs> right when she when she was doing the the halftime show in the some government body, maybe the was it the FCC? I might be making up. Yeah. I might be making up acronyms. Um, <laughs> came along and said, "Nope, that's not like we have to cover this, right?" Justin Timberlake, how dare you expose her breast? And you go all over Europe, and they're topless beaches. Right? It's just. Yep the exposure of a breast is not considered something deemed shameable or shameful in most of European places. Whereas in America, it, you know, it causes this massive uproar. So I think it's, I think we have to be very careful when we talk about it too, that it is uh, time and place dependent. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like the body and like issues of sex, I think are like a great example of, when people feel shame or don't feel shame. Um, and uh, like the, the the first example that comes to mind for me is um, purity culture mm-hmm. in like evangelical subcultures that like purity is the thing. <laughs> like that's what you need to be, especially women. And um, I remember, like I, I definitely grew up and in that, world and had as a kid, um, like the true love weights jewelry and our youth group did, um, a series on like sex and purity and the boys and girls would be separated and we'd go learn our own versions of like, whatever, uh, <laughs> and, you know, definitely not encouraged to discuss those things with each other. <laughs> um, and then we would like sign a purity pledge. Mm-hmm. And we had like a whole ceremony. I know some people yeah. had purity balls. That was not actually something that I had or participated in, but purity balls, um, as I understand them, were um, 
these like banquets where I think it was for daughters. It could be for sons, but the way I've heard it is that the daughters go with their fathers and it's like a thing where you have a banquet so weird. and you just yeah. like commit to being pure is like a demonstration of purity. So there's like this major emphasis on like virginity and not having any kind of sexual relationship until you are married. And this purity culture, like it's very, very powerful. And um, that is a situation in which you may or may not believe that purity is something that you care about. It almost doesn't really matter if you think it's kind of silly because if you if somebody found out that you did something that you weren't supposed to do, you can still feel shame in that situation. Right. Um, because you have like violated a norm and the norm is a marker of who is like living up to these ideals. Um, and so in that case, like I obviously now not really being at all part of this, the, the purity subculture, it's like part of a past that I'm very familiar with, but it's not something that I would like make someone feel shame for because I don't care about that. But there are other things, maybe political things that I would want well, people I, to feel shame for. Um, can I, if yeah. you don't mind, and this may be too personal and so, cause I'm not familiar with that culture at all. So mm -hmm. I'm just curious, like, like when, when did you pull away from that culture? Now I don't need you to talk about, you know, whatever, but I'm just curious, mm -hmm. like, was it something that you read or just as you, you grew up and started, I'm just like, what, what was that like? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, um, it, it was really whenever I was a freshman and sophomore in college and uh -huh. I, I think until near the end of freshman year, maybe like early sophomore year, but I think of freshman year was actually like the first time that I stopped wearing my uh, true love weights ring. And okay. I, I did feel really weird about taking it off because I, like, I, I knew that my mom was going to ask me about it the first, like when I went home, I knew it would be noticeable to like remove that piece of jewelry. Um, and I knew that there would be like judgments about me from my family, especially um, like whether right or wrong, that would like change what they assumed about like <laughs> this like hidden life that I lead, which <laughs> was not something I was trying to make a hidden life. I just, and it wasn't even about my personal like decisions about sex, actually. It was not about that at all. It was about conversations I was starting to have with um, friends. And at the time, Chad, who was my boyfriend, and we started dating in freshman year of college. Um, but Chad and I, uh, Chad also grew up in the same world as me. So he, but, you know, being a boy had like slightly different experience of it, but we would talk a lot about it. And um, I would talk a lot about it with friends. And I, I just started to understand and see differently how like this was um, ex the expectations were really different on women and that huh. was something just rooted in all the things that I like don't believe <laughs> or was really struggling to like square away with this like religious upbringing I had about the relationship between men and women and like the dominance of men 
over women in marriages, um, even though like a lot of people, if you ask them, if you ask like my parents, for example, they're not going to probably say that they, like my mom is probably not going to say like, I submit to your father. <laughs> like, it's not like that. Um, but it is, uh, it comes out in more subtle ways and it's very hard to um, articulate, actually, if you haven't really experienced it. But I just was starting to see things in a new light. And for me, I became very troubled by this upbringing and uh, like the way that it makes women feel like they are damaged goods if they do anything sexual <laughs> at all. And that men, if they do anything sexual, it's like, oh, good job, bro, you did it. <laughs> And like that doesn't make any sense and it's really harmful. Extremely harmful. um, Mm -hmm. It just, it like inculcates all of these feelings of inferiority and makes you feel like you don't belong or that you have this like dirty secret that's not really a dirty secret. Like (laughs) it just, and, and this also feeds into, and this gets more political, like the way that people feel about um, like reproductive rights and yeah. how, you know, if you, if you live in a culture where purity is the highest ideal and you're like wearing true love weights jewelry and then you get pregnant, like it, it's complicated because a lot of um, women in these subcultures, they, they may not actually believe in abortion, but some of those women will get abortions and will seek out abortions and they um because of the shame that they may feel exactly if it's caught because of exactly. the learn because if you are caught pregnant you're like you've done everything wrong and you will be blamed and the man who got you pregnant like who cares about him we don't have to talk about him um well, and, yeah and I, I think in in those in that scenario that you pose also from a it's the religious aspect of why is abortion bad um, from right, that, that it's a religious feeling um, that, uh, and that comes later um, the, the punishment or the feelings of having an abortion and what, what that actually means, as opposed to the immediacy of shame of being a scandalous woman of being a fallen virgin of right, all of those things, which are immediate and generally speaking, right. Big broad stroke of humanity. We are still our primate selves in that whatever is the most immediate need is probably the one that we're going to address first. Um, and so the idea of, you know, something is going to happen to me in the afterlife or uh, the afterlife of these cells um, this embryo, who knows, as opposed to, oh my God, my world is going to collapse. My father's going to, uh, you know, disown me and I'm going to be homeless or I won't have a social circle, right? Those, right. Uh, there is one that is much more immediate and pressing. Um, and so I think that that's how we generally gravitate, um, our, our decision-making. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I also wonder how much of, from a, um, when, when we talk about the, um, fundamentalism uh, and usually therefore scripture as a basis of the, the tenets of fundamentalism and how you interpret them. 
you know, I wonder how much of this also genitalia and nudity and sexuality comes from the early parts of the, the Hebrew Bible, which was, of course, absorbed into the, the Christian Bible. Like, so, for example, in Genesis 2.25, uh, the two of them, meaning Adam and Eve, uh, were naked, the man and his wife, yet they felt no shame. Right. And what we read, though, in a few, a few verses later, um, in 3.5, but God knows that as soon as you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like divine beings who know good and bad. Shortly thereafter, in 3.7, it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they perceived that they were naked and they sewed together fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. Right, that, that, that we move from, you know, naked, no shame to, you know, awareness. And the first awareness that is read in a literal sense is that of genitalia and therefore shame and the need to cover it. So I'm wondering if that is also right, that that's, that that's where this comes from. Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely has a um, a role in trying to justify through scripture why it's um, mm. not okay, like you're saying. Um, and I think that the other like major justification or like rationalization of um, like ne- <laughs> being <laughs> not being sexual in any way <laughs> uh, is that. It just like your body is a temple. That's something that gets repeated over and over again. And um, you have to treat your body like a temple. And for those of you who are like, what does that even mean? I've never <laughs> heard that before. Uh, it it really was just this like metaphorical way of saying that your body is not really your own. It is God's. And so you have to treat it with the utmost respect and like marriage is the only way that you are able to enjoy sexuality because marriage is also seen as something that is this like sacred institution that like brings you further into the fold of like God's purpose and all these things. And so um, it's the only way that you are supposed to experience this like sexual part of your human self. Um, yeah. And, and I, it's just, it's interesting because I think that like the, the purity culture comes up for me and several other things too, but it's interesting because shame is something that it makes you want to hide something about yourself. And I think that on the surface, people see shame as um, something that is like a, a marker of who's in, who's out. It help, it helps, even though it feels bad for the individual who's feeling the shame. On a community level, it helps us to see the truth. <laughs> you know, uh, it brings things to light, and I think can be taken as uh, this positive, like community enforcer. And I myself. like see it that way sometimes when we're looking at an issue that like I believe is true and right. And someone violates that, then I'm like, yeah, I want them to feel shame. (laughs) Um, And I think on the other hand though, shame in the long term, if it's something that is never resolved, 
um, it may be hiding something underneath, but the, I think the like long-term outcome of shame ends up leading often to more harm, not only for the individual, but for the community. And so I think just to like stick with this example of the purity culture for, for women, especially who feel shame, um, you know, they maybe like women, they like have sex before they get married, or maybe, you know, they get pregnant, um, any number of things that like violate the rules and norms of purity culture. Um, and men too, like men who have sex, but pretend like they don't and pretend like they're virgins, um, when they get married. And then, you know, you have a man and a woman and notice that I'm speaking in like very heteronormative, uh, ways right now. That's intentional because that's like often the culture tied up with the purity culture. Um, and so you have maybe, uh, yeah, a man and a woman who, uh, get married and maybe they both think that they've been like, you know, at least on the surface living up to, like purity culture. Um, and maybe the woman actually has, and the man hasn't, and then they start having sex. And then the woman realizes that like, Oh, you seem to like actually know what you're doing, but we're supposed to be figuring this out together. So then there's like a falling out in their marriage of this man who has like not been pure. And now she's really angry. Or then on the other hand, if it's like the woman who seems to know what she's doing, then there's like, okay, well, you're not a pure virgin in this marriage when you claim to be that when we got married or there's also like Mm. the other extreme where maybe neither one of them decided to have sex and then they get married and you're just supposed to like know what to do and bodies are complicated and they like can't figure out actually how to have sex without pain and like making each other feel comfortable and like have pleasure and so there's just like all these strange, um, maybe unforeseen outcomes of purity culture that have, like, I'm, I'm not just making up these examples. Like these are things that happen to people and it comes out of shame. I think in large part of feeling like you are not supposed to understand, um, your own sexuality. And so by the time that you get to a place where you're allowed to use it, it becomes very frustrating and can lead to all these other issues. Um, is it, can I ask, I'm just, I, mean, I just think this conversation is really interesting. So like even in that, in the purity culture, you know, the emphasis is on waiting until marriage to experience anything sexual. Is it then like, cause you made the comment about, you know, that they don't, people who do that. And then when they get married, the challenges of, of even having sex, the pain, no pleasure, anything like that, like, is it even encouraged that or talked about that? Hey, when you get married, there's the importance of experiencing pleasure of enjoyment, not just about procreation. Like, I'm just curious, like, is anything like that ever, or does it ever come up in conversations about, so you're supposed to wait to get married, but when you get married, like you said, they don't know what to do, but I mean, is there even like general mentioning of like, yeah, it's yeah, more no. than just procreation? Um, uh, so yes, but I'm hesitating to even say yes, because it's just like a little bit complicated. So I, in general, yes, especially now, like there are all kinds of books, some of which Chad and I were gifted at, like when we got married that are all about like, you know, I, I should show y'all this one book that we this. have. It's the title of it. 
is called, um, what is it called? Um, it's like sheet music or something, (laughs) but it's like a Christian, uh, sex book. Uh-huh. And it, it's all about how, you know, like when you get married, then you can start to like experience sex, which is actually a gift. And it's something that you're supposed to enjoy together. And so there is a, an emphasis on pleasure, but it's just that you you have to wait until you're able to like have that part. And then I think there's also something, I, and I'm speaking largely anecdotally here, that generationally, I think older people have in my family have more of an emphasis on like the procreation as like, Mm -hmm. that's what it's all about. Not that there's no pleasure allowed or involved. I don't know. Don't really want to know (laughs) when we're talking about these (laughs) people in my family, but um, they will definitely say things like, you know, you you have to get married and you have to procreate. And thankfully I actually, um, as someone who Chad and I have still not decided if we are going to have kids, but um, other people in my family, like my parents, for example, are like really supportive either way of that. And so I think okay. like even in that um, like generation, I'm describing this as a generational gap. It could be something else, but um, they are not so much concerned about like procreating um, as the main goal of sex in marriage. And so marriage, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I just I just want to add a, um, uh, I'm say pop culture because it, it's a person's life, but there was a book, a memoir that came out called Unorthodox, uh, Deborah Feldman, and um, a mini series, I guess, a four part show. I think it was on Amazon, but I've got all the subscriptions, so I don't really remember. I'm like um, three episodes into it. Yeah, yeah. There's only four, so it's. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, you're good. <laughs> Just finish it. Um, it's talking about a woman who leaves a very fundamentalist sect of Judaism and all the different challenges. And one of those sections is actually dealing with sex. Um, and again, that same sort of feeling that it is something to feel shame about up until the point where you're married. And then if you have not produced a child within a year, then you should feel shame. Also, um, because now you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is appropriating and having children. And then what's wrong with you? And from the societal standpoint, same, same sort of thing. And they give some very graphic, um, very, very graphic, um, situations in that, um, in the book, as well as in the movie, uh, or miniseries. So what's uh, the name of it again? Unorthodox. Okay. Um, great book again, Deborah Feldman, they change the, um, um, uh, SD, SD is her name in the show. And I mean, it's just, it's a phenomenal show. Obviously it's, it's subtitled. I shouldn't say, obviously it's subtitled. (laughs) Um, but it's, it's really very powerful to get a different perspective. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that it's just the, the Christian fundamentalists that we're dealing with. I think it's, I think it's fundamentalism, um, as a world outlook that then stays here. 
Yeah. But I, I, I did want to like take us away from this conversation unless we want to keep Yeah, going. no, I'm fine with that. I, I, okay. I, I, the last question I wanted to ask was just because you yeah. referenced this series, Rachel, but is there anything, I mean, obviously, like I know that the community that you're part of is like different, not like, day. like for me too, like we're not <laughs> part of these like more fundamentalist communities, but do, right. do you know anyone um, who is Jewish that like has this background that you have like a more personal interaction or connection yeah. to? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, um, it's not as, it's not as unusual as, mm-hmm. um, as outsiders like to believe. Um, people leaving the fold or being um, excommunicated or, mm-hmm. you know, in harem or so in Judaism, it's, you know, it's the statement of um, you're dead to me. It is as though you are dead, um, leaving, leaving the community. And it's, mm-hmm. it's more common than, again, than outsiders understand. Like, is the, you, yeah. you're dead to me. Is, does that apply to both um, men, and, men women? and women? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. If you do something which shames yourself in your community, you are then asked to leave it. Or if you choose to leave it, you are then not welcomed back. Um, and because of the shame and because of um, so many other things, which yeah. I won't go into. I don't need to, to bash my co-religionists. Um, but I, I, have a, I have a very hard time with, with all fundamentalism. And, 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 and I say that not just from a religious standpoint, but fundamentalism in politics in culture in, mm-hmm. in in anything i don't believe that we're meant to be so narrow in in our understanding of what it means to live a human life mm-hmm. um but having said all of that i do want to add something positive from the jewish side of understanding shame and i'll just make a little tangent sorry ian i feel like we've been talking a whole no. bunch and not letting you okay 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 so about 1800 years ago, the Mishnah and then the Talmud were written and trying to understand what the Torah is, right? So that's that's where Judaism sort of diverges from a scriptural standpoint that we don't just rely on the Bible, but we rely on these massive tomes that have come for the last 2000 years since the Bible. And in one of those, it's talking about uh, damages. You know, so we've all read the passage, uh, Hammurabi's Code. Um, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a life for a life. And it's, it's written down twice in the Hebrew Bible. And I'm not sure if it's included in the, the Christian Bible in addition to what's already found in the Torah. But they're trying to figure out, well, let's not actually kill people. That would be a problem. Like, let's, let's not actually go out and be do physical damage to another human body. So what does this passage actually mean? And in the Mishnah, uh, Bava Kama, for anyone that's interested, Bava Kama 8, um, it actually says, ah, it, it's actually talking about payment, monetary payment. And there's five things that you have to pay someone for, which by the way, uh, our American, our American judicial system uses the same sort of terminologies, damages, pain, Healthcare, unemployment, and shame. And the question is, what do you mean shame? So it expands yeah. it a little bit and says it all depends on the one who is sh- who the one who does the shaming and the one who is shamed. The one who does the shaming 
if that person is a naked person, a blind person, or a sleeping person, uh, they're liable, like they have to pay. But if the sleeping person embarrasses, then you don't have to pay. So if you're sleepwalking and you do something that embarrasses or shames another person, it's okay. You don't have to pay damages because they allow for sleepwalking. And it just makes me wonder how prevalent sleepwalking was 2000 years ago (laughs) that 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 got added. Um, Specifically, like there you go. Yeah, exactly. Specifically as that example, like how big of a deal is this? Um, But what it ends with is the statement of no one is liable for shame unless one intended to cause it. That you can actually be liable for healthcare, for unemployment, for pain by an accident. Like if I, if I, you know, um, so one of the famous examples is, is wood is the woodcutter who's like, chopping his wood, you know, out there with his axe and the the axe handle like flies off and hits somebody. That's an accident, but the, the woodcutter is still, um, on the hook for paying for those damages. Um, but they would not be on the hook for shaming that person who now has a scar, Hmm. right? That, that, because there was, there was no intent there. So I find this one fascinating that shame, there needs to be an intent, behind it. And so I just wanted to get your guys's feel on, do you think that if there is, again, going with your thought, Kendra, that there are these societal norms um, and that it, it helps, you know, it helps sort of who's in, who's out. Does shame have to be intentional or not? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Also, I, like, I, I want us to sit with that question, but just yeah. because you quickly um, referenced the like eye for an eye and then said, I'm not sure if that's like in the Christian Bible. Um, I, I knew that it was, but I had to remember the like where exactly. And I um, found it, it. It's in Matthew 5, 38 through 48. Um, and I'll just read like the very beginning of it. But it says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Uh, right. And it, it goes on and it basically is like, you know, <laughs> this it's a complicated uh, set of instructions that is maybe another for another conversation to be kind, love your enemies. But how, how far does that go? <laughs> when do you to have what to cost to oneself? Yeah. So anyway, um, unrelated, but, uh, yeah, no, thank you. back thank to you the question. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, so to make sure that I'm understanding the question, you're asking about the intentional, the intentionality of the community to make an individual feel shame or not feel shame. I, I don't know if it's necessarily the community making an individual. It, I think it could still be an individual with inside the community. Like it could still be a one-on-one. It doesn't have to be like the society as an entity causing shame to one person. I think it can be one person intending to cause shame to another person, right? Like um, you cut off someone's nose because you know, not that that is an important part of a person's body, but because it will cause them shame later on, right? You could have, you could have easily harmed them in a place that would be covered by clothing, but you, you did it. You, you spited their face specifically because that would be seen as a detriment 
Right. So that Would that's that still a one to one. Shame or embarrassment or both? Like that's where I, I guess I'm coming back to like. Yeah, I think I think it could be. I think it could be. I think it depends how far and how deep it goes. How deep is right. your love? How deep is your shame? Because like, I wonder when we think about with shame, <laughs> we talk about how it's <laughs> shame is individual, right? It's internal, right? So like, Inter- I would say internal, but not necessarily individual. Okay, so internal, yeah. and so I mean, it's possible that you would have. I mean. Like you, you could not know that someone is experiencing shame right. unless they told you. Yeah. Yeah. I think right, it can so. be a hidden emotion. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you could, I mean, obviously and telling is not just verbal, you know, it's obviously facial expressions, all that kind of stuff. So I mean, if they, if they wear their shame in a way and you mm-hmm. know them well enough to know that when they are, you know, if someone is verbal uh, when they're experiencing shame, sometimes there's mm-hmm. telltale signs and cues on their faces and their mannerisms, but mm-hmm. that shame still is a personal inside type emotion. Mm-hmm. Unlike embarrassment, which, you know, if you, if you look at um, uh, Darwin, I think in the article that we read, uh, which we can yeah. post for sure, um, was talking, you know, really looking at blushing. Right. Um, as, the, the as the physiological there. evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, cause I guess, you know, an example that I had of an, and this is not really answering your question, Rachel, <laughs> sorry, but I just was thinking about, so, you know, for my home church, my Episcopal church that when the pandemic started, a few of us, uh, uh members, lay, lay leaders, I guess, decided to start helping out with services during the week on Facebook mm-hmm. and zoom and those types of things. And so, you know, I lead, a, our nightly, Compline service every Tuesday night on Facebook. And it's something I've really started to enjoy a lot, but it was right after, and you know, and I, I really have a lot of prayers, a lot of additional prayers in there just because I like to read them and I, they're soothing for me. And, and there's a set of prayers for the pandemic that the national church released in the spring. And then there's also a set of prayers to um, address systemic racism um, that was released right after George Floyd was murdered. And the very first prayer, it, either first or second in that set uh, for systemic racism talks about praying for our leaders to make good decisions and and mm-hmm. then lists the names you know and says for our uh, Donald our president and then you know governor senators blah 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 so the very first time i read that list of prayers was you know this soon after george floyd was murdered and i was so um angered by everything that i actually removed donald's name and just said, because none of the other leaders had their names. And so I just was so frustrated that I actually took it upon myself to just remove his name and just said, you know, I pray for our president, governors, senators, mayors, and just moved on. Um, and then the next week, as I was preparing, I started to feel a lot of shame for that because I felt like the idea there is to pray for all, not just some, can be kind of a mentality, even though that's tough to do. And so even though I adamantly disagree with him and his policies and pretty much everything he does, I felt that if anything, I needed to put his name back in because it was the right thing for me to do, but I never told anybody. I just did it. But that, I think if I went back and watched the videos, like obviously I remember the date when it happened, but you can see that when I read through that first prayer again, I get really emotional um, because I felt so 
ashamed and shameful for taking it upon myself to, even though there was no one telling me I, what I could or could not do. I just felt like I shouldn't have done that. And I felt shame for it. And then at our Bible study a few weeks ago, we were talking about, you know, different ways Christians are approaching politics and stuff like that. And, you know, it's no secret that Episcopal Church is more of a liberal liberal community anyway, but I brought that up and our um, priest was part of the Bible study and out of the members and got very emotional. And no one judged me or anything. I just said that I felt shamed, like shameful for taking it upon myself to do that. And that's just one of the clearest examples I can think about of personal shame. It, if I had not ever said anything, no one would have ever known. I felt shame for that. I could have just put it back in and not said anything. And no one, no one would know that I removed his name, but I just, you know, and again, there was no one telling me, there was no one making me feel shameful. I just felt it myself because at least to me, the way I sometimes think about prayers, if you're going to pray for all, then pray for all, right? If you're going to have more large blanket prayers like that, then I don't want it to be where I'm only selecting who gets a prayer. I don't know if that's, that's my decision to make, if that makes sense. follow-up question and I'm asking this question not as a leading question I'm like I'm not really sure what the answer is to this question but the the story that you describe I'm going back and forth as to whether that like when you describe feeling shame and then you do this thing you like put the name back in and that um I don't know like if that felt like it fully resolved itself for you Mm -hmm. but yeah, I guess I'm I'm trying to see like was that an instance of shame or was that an instance of That's guilt? That's what I'm curious about. Um, That's what I'm curious about. Even though in both sense, like I think guilt we associate with someone actually like doing something wrong, and I don't think that's. Um, that's not how I'm like using it or understanding it now. Right. But there's like an action that you took, um, and right. and your community wasn't even like, Ian, why'd you do that? You know, yeah. they were like, oh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It was not, there was no one telling me you're in or you're out. Even after I shared it. (laughs) Right. I still have not heard from anyone telling me you were wrong. Yeah. You should not have done that. How dare you? Nothing. No judgment. Yeah. They just said, okay. And that was it. And we moved on. Yeah. No, it, so I it's, do wonder, is that an example of guilt or shame? Or I think that's an interesting example because it, it yeah. does like sound to me like guilt on one hand. But I think that this, the fact that it was um, like you could have felt shame. And this is also where it gets complicated because guilt can, can turn into shame. So maybe if you hadn't changed the name back, you might have, like it, maybe it was shame. And you did mm-hmm. feel in this case, though, it was um, a little bit of an easier fix because you didn't actually have the external pressure from other people. Right. You were policing yourself. Um, and so it makes it kind of a border case. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, an interesting example. And it, it kind of reminds me, it kind of brings me back to Rachel's question earlier about like the intentional, like right. if somebody's trying to make you feel shame, 
Um, or on the other hand, like in, in your case, Ian, some, like no one was trying to make you feel shame. Um, and so there is this, um, relationship, like you feel shame in relation to, but sometimes the relation to the, the community on the other end can be imagined. Um, like, you know, we're all part of actual physical communities, but what they think or expect of us is sometimes imagined. And that still counts as like a real presence on, what we feel or decide to do. And it seems like maybe that was the case for you. Mm-hmm. And the reason I re- relate that to Rachel's question is like, if you want to go cut someone's nose off and you want them to feel shame, you can want them to feel shame as you know, to a high degree, but that person might not feel shame if there's no, like if right. they, if they don't think of their nose as something that's like, exactly really relevant to like (laughs) who they are as a person like for whatever reason you know it's like an inconvenience then maybe they'll be like okay yeah i i'm sad that i don't have a nose but i'm i don't feel ashamed uh whereas you know on the other hand maybe you're like cutting off something that's like what that person feels to be the highest like the most beautiful part of their body and maybe there's this like beauty ideal tied into mm-hmm. it and so you could feel shame by having a part of your body removed that gives you that sense of self-esteem in terms of like beauty standards um right so yeah I mean, the- hair right hair or yeah. or piousness right piety mm-hmm. um right the idea of cutting off someone's beard or their side locks right something which doesn't cause physical harm Right. Like we all, I'm not going to say we all get our haircuts because not everyone does. Right. Some people don't and some people are bald. So, um, but, but it's not, it doesn't cause physical pain to get your haircut, but it can cause definite shame if you're of a community that values that, that particular look. Yeah. yeah. Like, so I'm just curious if you guys maybe remember, I think it may have happened back in the spring, maybe fall. There was the young. <laughs> Time has no meaning. Yeah, I know. The young man, uh, high school student, African American, who they made him shave off his dreadlocks before some sort of event. Mm. I can't remember where it was. I mean, it was horrific that it happened because it was such yeah. an attack on his his him as a person, his character, culture, everything. I mean, it was such a uh, misunderstanding of culture and of who mm-hmm. he was or who he is, right? But that he was forced to do that. That I, I'm not. I'm, I've never met him, so I'm just would wonder the type of emotional and psychological pain that he may have experienced. Um, you know, I can't say he did or did not because I don't know him, but I would wonder if like shame would ever come into something like that where societal norms in this case, in most cases, it's more of a white culture is insisting that mm-hmm. you who are not part of this white culture, if you want to fit in, you need to do it our way. We can't accept your culture, which we've, you know, happens in our country all the time that I'm just curious how people like that feel, how people in those other cultures feel. Yeah. Do, do they experience the sh- uh, shame when they return to where they live or. Yeah. I also wonder. I, I don't you know, know. Just, yeah, exactly. I don't know. I also wonder if it's, if it's imposed by a different right? So we've been talking about culture also as a, um, as a requirement of shame. And so if you're blending multiple cultures and you're, one of the cultures is causing you to do something that had you chosen to do it yourself, perhaps your other culture would 
would cause you shame, right? So for example, you know, we, we can take, maybe we can take locks, maybe we can take um, side, you know, side curls, we can take beards, right? It's all men, by the way, I don't have any women examples here. Uh, maybe wearing, uh, maybe wearing a, a hijab, um, right? That, that if the, if the other cultures that if, if you, the person says, I choose not to do this inside my minority culture, um, where this is necessary, then maybe that minority culture is going to have shame. But if it is the majority culture, which is saying you cannot do that, and the minority culture is then just responding, I don't know if shame would be the feeling as opposed to, say, anger or resentment or disgust or right, something else, but that it's, it's a choice within each culture. Um, that would cause that. So that that's my that's my gut feeling. Um, just like I was I was thinking about the doctor um, in California. I believe he was a Sikh that then chose because he couldn't wear um, a, he couldn't fit appropriate masks coverings um, while treating COVID patients um, with his large beard, and so he chose to cut off his beard so that he could then serve his patients. Um, oh, beautiful. It was a beautiful story. Um, right. Yeah. Where it was a, like, this is a, this is a righteous person who's, who's carrying this facial hair for religious reasons, but then is choosing to not for other righteous reasons. Right. And so, right, right. you know, I think, I think that's also the intent, but if he, you know, if that person had just said, eh, it's hot, I don't like beards anymore. And he shaves it off. Right. Maybe that would be a, a shame. And that's where the intent comes from. Um, yeah. But I sort of want to, you know, wrap up our conversation and and see, see if there's anything else that we want to to share in terms of how we how we value shame um, as individuals or or as our perception of the society in which we live. Yeah, I think even though. um like I said earlier, I think there's always a gut reaction to want people to feel shame when you perceive them to be like breaking some kind of moral boundary that is important to us. And I think that's just like a gut reaction that's understandable. But I think, I don't know, the the more that I um, have read about and thought about shame, I I do see especially in just like the like polarized world that we live in and like my constant struggle of trying to like keep lines of communication open with people across like political and um, you know, I mean, I say religious divides, it's mostly political divides that um, it's just really difficult. And I, I don't think that shame is ever something that's very useful in trying to um, keep those lines of communication open and to try to like keep a relationship whole. And yet I can't quite let go of the feeling that it is something that's still useful and important for just like understanding like what, we see to be moral and not moral. And it, I, it, yeah. it's like a c- contradictory 
impulses in me that are like, yes, I want you to feel shame, but also I love you and let's talk about this. Um, and I don't really know how to like square those things away. Um, yeah. Perhaps you sometimes don't- when you talk about wanting others to feel shame, like, like, you know, I brought him up earlier, like with like Trump and, you know, some of his, even though he's been saying it for a while now, you know, his claims of, well, we'll just see about the election. I don't know if I'll accept the results or not, you know, and it's, it's part of his efforts to undermine the integrity of our election. And then, you know, his, his talk and rants about, I don't know if there will be peaceful transition of power if I lose and all those types of things, you know, that when I hear him say that or other politicians do things that you're just like, uh, what that I wish that that person, you know, that's, that's one of my gut instincts or reactions is like, I wish they would feel shame. But to me, I don't, I think I'm not naive enough to think that that would do anything to change the actions of those individuals. Like I, 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 you know, and they may feel shame again. We are talking about it's more internal, so they could feel it, but just choose not to you know, acknowledge that. But I don't think, you know, if, if one day uh, Trump or other politicians felt shame over something, would they necessarily immediately change? Or would it just be more about for me? Like, would I, would that make me feel good for them to say, yeah, I feel shame. Like, okay, well now what are you going to do about it? Right. So I don't, I do wonder, like you were saying, is it, is it helpful? Yeah. I, I think, I think it is helpful. And I think if for to sort of also address something that Kendra said, I think it's okay to be contradictory. I think that is, I think that's part of the human condition. I think that is part of what makes emotions fascinating and infuriating simultaneously Mm -hmm. is that we have the ability to, to hold both at, at some funerals, not all. Um, I have this, I have this reading that talks about Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastes says that there's a time for everything. And I argue and I say, no, um, we, we don't have time to have everything have its own season. We actually, sorry, my, my cat's meowing in the background. (laughs) So sorry. Um, we don't, we have to laugh and cry with the same eyes and the same tears. And that's okay. So even if we want someone else to feel shame and they don't, or we're conflicted about it, I think we give ourselves a pat on the back, a a smiley sticker and say, congratulations, we're human. Mm 